Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber, who is formerly a staff reporter at Reuters and Newsday. Uh, she's written for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. Uh, and her latest book is called In Cheap We Trust, the story of, an, of a misunderstood American virtue. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's just, I gave a little bit of your background, but give me a little bit more of a sense of uh, what you've done as a journalist and, and why you wanted to do this book. Sure. Um, well, I've been a business reporter for about 10 years or so. Started my career at Reuters um, covering stock markets and publicly traded companies, then moved on to Newsday, which I um, really enjoyed because I was writing for more of a general audience rather than just a financial audience, and always in enjoyed the challenge of um, trying to translate economic ideas into layman's terms. So um, writing for Newsday was great in terms of experience with that. Then I took a year off and did a fellowship at Columbia Business School for uh, business journalists. Ten business journalists a year are chosen to go there, and you basically take the first year of an MBA. And I found that that was a great opportunity to delve a little bit deeper into this topic that had always been close to my heart, which was the meaning of frugality in America, um, it, both historically, economically, um, different ways of looking at this topic. And if you want, I can go into why that topic has been so close to my heart. Okay, we'll get into it. Just kind of give me the overall view of when people hear, hear the word cheap, uh, what are the connotations of that in, in most people's minds? Well, we think of it as a dirty word. You know, it's, uh, we associate it with um, goods that are made in China that are liable to break relatively quickly with um, um, things you might buy at Walmart or Target that where maybe you're not paying the true price of what those items cost to produce and, and ship and get to, you know, where you are. Um, you know, we think of the cheap suit, cheap date, um, you know, the, all of these are negative connotations. It's rare that you find uh, something positive to be said about the word cheap. And that was partly why I was really interested in it. I, I was interested, I think that word captures a lot of our ambivalence about both saving and spending. You know, if, if you call somebody thrifty or frugal, you know, nobody really argues with that. I don't think it's as much of an American virtue as it once was, say, in the day of Ben Franklin. Um, but, you know, the word cheap is people get very emotional about it, and it was really interesting to watch people's responses while I was working on the book. I always had, I always had that word in mind as part of my title. And, you know, it just would provoke a lot of reaction, and I, and I wanted to sort of take advantage of how provocative it was and use it as in the title of the book. So is it incorrect? I mean, is it an emotional thing that's, that's actually not intellectually honest, that, that cheap is actually not a negative word, it's not a, kind of a dirty word, it, it should be honored more, is what you're saying? Well, you know, there's obviously um, people who tip over into, or, or actions that tip over into perhaps unethical territory or, or compulsive pathological territory. You know, somebody who's so cheap or frugal or thrifty that they don't want to go to the doctor when they're sick, you know, obviously they're kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face. Or, you know, we all have probably have friends who um, you go out to dinner with them and they're always stiffing everybody else at the table when the bill comes. You know, it's, I, uh, you know that's, that's not what I'm in favor of here. But I did kind of want to reclaim this word and bring a little respect back to um, cheapness or frugality. Again, you know, I sort of wor use all those words interchangeably, but um, some people might prefer frugality or thrift. I, I kind of like cheapness. What has been the reaction since the book came out to it? Um, you know, mostly positive. I mean, it, you know, the timing of it had something to do with that. When I started working on the book, it was 2005, and the economy was going gangbusters. The housing market was doing great. And, you know, then in 2007, things started to look a little worse. And then in 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, um, suddenly I think people were really worried that we were about to plunge into something like the Great Depression. And so by the time the book came out, it was this kind of, uh, this topic was on people's minds a lot. And, you know, I think, whereas when I started it, I liked the idea that the book itself, which is kind of, a, it's both a history, but also a, a, 
a reclamation of, of cheapness and thrift. When I started it, it, the ideas kind of went counter to what was happening in the culture, and I sort of liked that idea. Then I got scooped by the economy, and pretty soon everybody was talking about frugality. So my book kind of came out right in the middle of that time period when, you know, people were saying cheap is the new cool, cheap is the new green. Um, so it got, I think, a pretty welcome reception because a lot of people were rethinking consumption, either their own personal consumption or, you know, what, um, thinking about things on maybe a bigger scale as well. Now, apparently your father was a, quite an influence. Would you call him cheap and kind of what was his influence on your interest in uh, cheapness? Yes, he is really the inspiration for the book, and it's, the book is dedicated to him. Uh, my dad can only be described as compulsively cheap. He, he happens to be an economist. Uh, professionally, he taught economics for about 35 years, but he's also an economist in every other sense of the word. He, um, well, I grew up in Connecticut, and he would keep the heat in our house at 50 degrees, which is very cold through the winter, so I would be doing my homework with a hat and a scarf on. I remember one time my mother threatened to bring my brother and sister and I all to a motel uh, where at least it would be warm enough for us to do our homework, and my dad at that point relented because he knew that would be more expensive than just turning up the heat about five degrees. Um, he doesn't like to use the brakes on his car. He has a whole system of tapping and thrusting that he thinks is easier on the brake pads. He uses hand signals out the car, at the window of the car, because I think he doesn't want to wear out the, um, the bulbs and the turn signals. Um, he, uh, he does all kinds of things like that. I mean, you know, he, he tried to ration our toilet paper one time. So I grew up kind of observing this almost in an anthropological sense, observing my dad. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I would just complain about it all the time. But as I got older, I sort of found it very curious. And then eventually I also came to appreciate the way my dad was. Um, you know, he, he taught me a lot of good lessons about living within my means, about not going into debt. And I always try to stress that he not, he's not only very cheap, he's also very generous. He sent my brother and sister and I, along with my mother, of course, to, um, you know, very excellent private schools, never complained about the tuition, private universities, that is. We went to public schools until then. And, um, you know, gives a lot of money to causes that he cares about. You know, it occurred to me at a certain point that it wasn't just that he was cheap. It was that he, he knew what his values were, and he put his money where his mouth was. So it really sounds like a kind of a combination of resentment and... Uh, Admiration for yeah, him. admiration, respect, and gratitude. Because you know the thing is, I kind of turned into my father, and that's probably on some level also why I wanted to write this book as maybe a self-rationalization for some of my own um, cheap quirks. I, I do so, get so made you're, fun you're of by my friends. You're as cheap as your father. You're, you're, you have a lot of the similar. Uh, kind of rationing uh, habits? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say I'm not quite as compulsive as him, and I also inherited my mother's appreciation for fine things, which is partly why I, how I ended up spending $350 on a pair of beautiful Italian leather boots. Um, but With some guilt as well? <laughs> um, guilt about the spending or about the saving? About the boots. No, no guilt at all, partly because, you know, I live in New York City and I walk everywhere. I walk all the time and I realize at a certain point buying inexpensive boots that are badly made is just not worth it. So, you know, I bought these really high-quality boots and then I just wore them for five years. I got them resold every year. I took really good care of them. And so in the end, it really amortizes to about, you know, 70 or $80 a year and that's not so bad. So tell me a little bit about the psychology of cheap. Is it coming out of a sense of deprivation? Uh, is it coming out of fear? Uh, what is it that, that motivates uh, somebody living cheaply? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to generalize for everybody, but um, Freud tried to give an explanation for this. With part of what was interesting to me when I did my research was that almost no research has been done on the psychology of cheapness or frugality. You know, consumer researchers have looked at every single reason why people spend. They've rarely looked at reasons why people save or don't spend. So there's very little out there. Um, but Freud did write a little bit about this. He connected it with unresolved potty training issues, and um, which at first I found sort of silly. In fact, I once asked my great aunt, my father's aunt, uh, who's also a psychotherapist, you know, why my father was so cheap. And she said, well, Freud would say it had something to do with potty training. And I said, that's ridiculous. And she said, well, it's all about what you hold on to and what you let go of. And I thought, well, that actually makes some sense. But, um, you know, he, he saw it as a, a form of control and rigidity and uptightness. And, you know, I see that in both myself and my father and other people I know, a certain 
kind of rigid thinking. Um, you know, we like rules. We like um, to sort of live within a strict kind of discipline. But, you know, and for other people, I think it is a sense of, um, you know, insecurity in the world. There's always a feeling of, well, what, what disaster could be around the corner? You're always saving for a rainy day. Um, so it's out of and, fear, you're saying? It's out of fear of the unknown in the future? Yeah, exactly. You know, and obviously these things can go too far. But the thing is, in our post-Freudian society, we have kind of demonized that quality of, of people who are cautious and careful and, you know, we've sort of, we've, we've um, turned into our heroes, people who spend frivolously, you know, like celebrities or hedge fund managers or, you know, who spend way too much money. And I think we, maybe, you know, we should take a closer look at this idea of, you know, even if that insecurity may not always be rational and maybe it can drive people to be a little too fearful or frightened. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saving for a rainy day, you know, and I think, if anything, the last couple of years have shown us that you just never know when disaster is going to strike and when you need a little cushion. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber, uh, whose new book is called In Cheap We Trust, The Story of a Misunderstood American Virtue. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber. Uh, whose book is called In Cheap We Trust, The Story of a Mis Misunderstood American Virtue. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. Thanks. And give them a website where they can find out more about you and the book. Sure. Uh, my website is laurenweber.com. It's L-A-U-R-E-N-W-E-B-E-R.com. And is there kind of a community around this uh, uh, topic of cheapness and blogging people and social media and all yeah, that Yeah, a large, large community. There are a million blogs out there about uh, saving money, um, you know, being thrifty, and it also dovetails with the whole DIY movement, the sort of do-it-yourself crafter kind of movement. So um, 
you know, it, it branches out into a bunch of different area, areas. But, you know, what's, what's interesting is that there are lots and lots of people. One thing I, I realized when I was writing the book, well, when I first started working on it, a friend of mine said that I should call it Thrift, A Short History of a Dying Virtue. And the more I talked about it with people, the more I realized it's not dying at all. Everybody I mentioned the book to said that they, you know, I should talk to their mother or their boss or their son or their brother-in-law or, you know, everybody had people that I should talk to. And so it was clear that this is a um, hale and hearty virtue for a lot of people. Um, but many people are living frugally on their own. You know, I, I like to say thrift never died. It just kind of went underground for a while. Um, and now I think partly because of, you know, concerns about the environment and uh, the way our consumption is affecting global warming and also, of course, what's happened with the economy, I think thrift is coming out of the woodwork and people are finding each other and there's more and more of a community and in some ways political movements around frugality. So I'd like to talk about relationships as it relates to frugality and, and cheapness. Uh, if you're brought up cheap as you were and your father had all this big influence on you, how does that affect the person you're trying to have a relationship with. Do you want somebody similarly cheap or even cheaper than you, or do you want somebody who's like a wild spender to kind of counteract your cheapness? <laughs> what is the dynamics there? Well, this is a question that comes up a lot. In fact, often people's first question to me is, are you single? Because I think they figure that, um, you know, these are, these are quirks or habits that don't go over that well in relationships. But um, I was with somebody for eight years who was exactly the opposite of me. He was quite a spendthrift. He had no money. He was a struggling artist. But, you know, anytime he had $5 in his pocket, he would spend it on, um, you know, a muffin and a cup of coffee at Starbucks, whereas if I had $5, I would invest it in the highest-yielding um, account that I could find and, and grow it. And... Um, we actually found that our different habits worked really well with each other. You know, for one thing, I convinced him to pay off his credit card debt when he made a little money, and he also helped me laugh at some of my more compulsive and irrational uh, ways of being cheap. So, you know, in that sense, like, it, it worked very well, even though we were opposites. On the other hand, I've also gone out with people who are even cheaper than me. My last boyfriend um, couldn't pass a dumpster without climbing into it. <laughs> so, you know, and, was that more um, and I would usually be his trusty accomplice standing on the sidewalk taking down everything that he was passing to me. Um, Is that more so satisfying for cheap I think person? it can work either way. That, that's more satisfying for a cheap person to be with another one even cheaper, or, or is this some kind of release in having somebody not, not burdened by all these fears as a cheap person has? Well, we did have a lot of fun dates going dumpster diving and eating tacos out of the, not out of the trash, but, at, you know, <laughs> our favorite meal was um, tacos under the 7 train, the under the subway in my neighborhood, um, which were $2 each. You know, who needs a fancy dinner when, as long as you've got somebody that you get along with? Um, so, you know, I would say... So that's um, what you would recommend. Either one then? can be liberating. You would recommend if somebody's in cheap mode that they look for another cheap oriented person or a spendthrift. What would you recommend? Just look for someone who makes you laugh. <laughs> but um, you know, in terms of the money, I, you know, you often hear that money is one of the biggest areas of conflict with with in relationships. So you know, probably the safest thing is to find somebody who shares the same attitudes and habits. Now, in general, in, in society today, we've gone on a big spending binge. Individually, companies, corporations, uh, governments, I mean, there's just a huge amount of debt in the world because of all the spending that's been going on in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though that era is about to change. We're going to go to an era of austerity. We're having massive cutbacks by government agencies. Corporations are laying people off. Entire countries like Greece and Portugal and Spain are going to these major austerity programs in order to start paying back the huge debts they've taken on. Is this a, a seminal moment in a switch from uh, kind of wild spending towards cheapness on a, on a global scale? Well, to some extent it is, although personally I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, I write a lot in the book about John Maynard Keynes, and I am, for the most part, a Keynesian. He believed in deficit spending when the government is not, or, you know, when the economy is stagnant or um, decelerating. And, you know, we had that with the stimulus plan I pa uh, passed at the end of Bush's term and then more stimulus plans and bailouts under Obama. You know, we are, now there seems to be a very strong move against deficit spending and a lot of 
belt tightening and cutting back, you know, both on the national level and counties, cities, um, you know, and, of course, the personal level. You know, I have mixed feelings about that. It will choke off the you know, the growth that we managed to get going through the stimulus spending. And I, I do wonder if we are now entering this austerity period a little bit too early in terms of the government spending. But, you know, I think in the long run, I think the, the motivation behind it is a good one, which is that you just can't live without, you can't live outside of your means forever. You know, and I think that's a lesson that governments and individuals have had to learn the very, very hard way. And, you know, if we can, I, that doesn't always, in my mind, mean that you have to cut programs and cut spending. I think another way to do that is also to increase revenue. Of course, that means tax increases, and, you know, that's politically unpalatable for the most part, especially at a tenuous economic moment. So, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about this new age of austerity, but I do think in the long run it's a lesson we've had to, we do have to learn. I'm talking about the psychological shift that needs to happen. Ah, I mean, you mean say for individuals? Say, well, say you're a worker, on, uh, you know, an, uh, a government worker in Greece or Spain, and you've had these wonderful pensions and salary increases and all kinds of wonderful benefits, and now they're coming and saying, you know, we're going to cut your pension, raise your taxes, cut your pay, all kinds of things, and they're riding in the streets. They don't want to be cheap and thrifty. Mm -hmm. what, what, and this is happening around the world, in the U.S. and Europe and so on. What is the psychological shift that people need to make in going from uh, plenty to cheapness and, and to uh, kind of cutting back so dramatically? Right. Well, you know, in this country, we, we had to do that with the Great Depression. We haven't had anything quite as dramatic since then. And, you know, I think what that shows and probably what time will show us in countries like Greece and Portugal is that human beings are very adaptable. And yes, no one wants their benefits cut. No one wants their pensions cut. I mean, I, I envy Europeans for having all of the benefits that they have. But I think that we'll find that people can actually make do on much less. You know, you become accustomed to a certain level of affluence or wealth or comfort. And, you know, we're very resourceful we human beings are very resourceful. And I think people will be able to make the shift once they realize that there's no other way out. The question is, will it stay that way? You know, will people internalize those that shift? And, you know, if you look at our experience here in the U.S. with the Great Depression, like many, many people were, were so deeply scarred by that that they never overcame the feeling of always being deprived. But on the other hand, and I asked my great aunt, this, the, the psychotherapist, the same question because she is of that generation that lived through the Depression. And she said, it's kind of a myth that people who lived through the Depression became frugal and stingy and tight with their money. She said she knows just as many people who were determined never to feel deprived again and are perfectly happy to spend lots of money. So, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's hard to generalize about how individuals respond. And on the other hand, I think historically, um, we, what I noticed in researching the history of thrift for the last 300 years or so is that um, just as people are adaptable in terms of being able to cut back, they're very adaptable in terms of being able to expand their spending when you know, their incomes are able to support it. it and also when credit becomes more available. Some of this is generational. I mean, as you say, the, the Depression era had a big impact on a lot of people. And then in the post-boom post-war boom caused prosperity for the baby boomers for the most part, so they really haven't had to deal with austerity or cutbacks or, or thrift to the most extent. What is the intergenerational uh, feeling going on? Is there kind of resentment by the, the Depression-era mentality towards the free-spending baby boomers, and the baby boomers think the Depression-era people are kind of too cheap, or kind of what are some of the intergenerational dynamics there? Yeah, you know, I found when I, would, when I would talk to people about my book, many people who were in their, say, 40s or 50s and had parents who lived through depre the Depression or, or in their 60s also, they were, you know, they would complain about their parents who were stingy, um, you know, and, and to their minds irrational about money, you know, somebody who wouldn't buy toilet paper but insisted that their kids use newspapers or, um, you know, who had a tiny little apartment and, and saved their money and could have afforded to move to a house but never did because, you know, they were always waiting for the, the crash to come, the next crash. You know, so there is a lot of resentment, but I think that people who are of my generation and younger, I'm 39 um, and younger, I think are 
maybe a little, you know, maybe a little disillusioned with the world that baby boomers created. You know, I think to some extent we look at some of the environmental crises like Hurricane Katrina and now the Gulf oil spill as being the result of this um, frenzied consumption, you know, and and the car culture of the post-war era and, you know, ever bigger houses and things like that. So, you know, I... It could be that I'm just talking to a small, a select group of people, but I do think there's, among younger people, a, a kind of turning away from, from the overconsumption of, of their parents. You have a whole chapter at the beginning of the book called The Nation of Savers, and you say traditionally uh, we really have been a, a nation of uh, saving, and, and it really changed, I guess, when the baby boom came along. Is that right? Un- until then, we had been had high savings rates and were, were quite thrifty. Is that correct? Well, actually, you know, I think the story is more complicated than that. And any time you take a closer look at history, I think you always come to the conclusion that, you know, it's, it's always hard to say things were one way or another. Actually, I found that even in, in colonial days, you know, the Puritans tried to pass sumptuary laws where basically they forbade certain kinds of spending um, in order to control consumption. You know, they had a religious justification for it. Um, you know, that if you, you couldn't worship God properly if you worshipped the material world too much. And yet, the those rules were never enforced because people refused. Um, you know, so we've always had a very complicated relationship with thrift. Very much so. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber, uh, whose book is called In Cheap We Trust, The Story of a Misunderstood American Virtue. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owner Show with your coach, Rick Carrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Carrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owner Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber, whose book is called In Cheap We Trust, The Story of a Misunderstood American Virtue. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. Thank you. And give them your uh, website again. They can find out more about you and the book. It's laurenweber.com, L-A-U-R-E-N-W-E-B-E-R.com. You have a chapter here on uh, what you call living cheap in the age of mass consumption. 
when, when things were so mass-produced and therefore got cheaper, uh, how do people live cheap in that kind of era? Right. Well, you know, I started out sort of with that paradox in mind. You know, at an earlier time, people made everything that they had. They, they sewed their own sheets. They cut the wood for their fireplaces. And, um, you know, what does cheap mean in, the, in an age where it's much cheaper to go to Walmart and buy a sweater for $10 than to knit one yourself? Um, but in this chapter, I wanted to trace you know, some of the people who were really living on the edges of, of, um, of our consumer society, you know, really in a, in, who are living very, very frugally. And so I looked at a couple of different social movements. One is the Compact, which was started in a 2006, I believe, soon after Katrina. And it was a group of eight friends in San Francisco who decided that for a year they wouldn't buy anything new except for food and medicine and things like that. But they, you know, clothes, furniture, um, anything like that. They would only buy used or trade, you know, get things off free cycle, have swap meets, things like that. And what was amazing was that the San Francisco Chronicle did a story about them and immediately, you know, hundreds of people were trying to contact them asking how to join their movement. And they thought this was very funny because there was no movement. They were just, you know, trying to live in a more eco-conscious and frugal way. And they eventually did start a Yahoo News group and or a Yahoo group, and I think 10,000 people ended up joining at one point. And it showed that there was, there were a lot of people questioning, you know, where our society was headed in terms of, you know, overconsumption. Um, I also write about Freegans, which is a group of people, kind of a loosely based um, group of anarchists mainly all over the country who try to live outside of the money economy, which means they, they don't want to spend money, they don't want to earn money. And so they squat in abandoned buildings, they dumpster dive for most of their food, they um, you know, ride bikes instead of owning cars or taking subways, that kind of thing. And um, that actually gets a lot of strong reaction from people because, of course, most people cringe at the thought of uh, eating trash, eating, eating food out of the trash. But I went on some of these dumpster diving trips with them. You know, I went on about a dozen of them, and I was amazed at how much perfectly good food gets thrown away by supermarkets. I mean, sometimes it was sealed bags of um, potato chips or cookies or, um, you know, things that hadn't even reached their expiration dates. Um, you know, and then I also looked at some individuals who were living frugally on their own, not as any part of a movement, but just kind of quietly and on the margins of society. So what do you draw from this? Is this the direction things are headed? Well, you know, I think, well, I think, you know, you can tell from the reaction to the compact and also from Freegans, they actually were on Oprah, um, you know, and there, and there have been many, many, many articles and, and TV segments done about them. There is definitely an increasing interest in what they're doing. Some of the coverage is horrified and some of the coverage is very respectful and kind of, you know, look ad- admiring. So I do think, you know, more and more people are just questioning the way we live in this culture and, you know, wondering if we're, we're using more than our fair share of resources. I mean, the United States uses something like 30% of, of all of the oil and gas in the, in the world, something like that, um, far, and away, far and away more than our proportion of the population, the global population. So, you know, yes, there's definitely more interest and there are more people looking at living this way. But at the same time, you know, I'm convinced that as soon as the economy swings back into the black and things are going well again, you know, we're, we'll start seeing ads for $10,000 handbags and um, maybe even Hummers will be resurrected or something like that. So, you know, I'm skeptical about the long-term impact. You know, when you study this over centuries, you really see the ebb and flow of history and things always just cycle back around. You were talking a little bit earlier about the generational change. Uh, what was it that changed from the Depression-era mentality people who went through the war and rationing and all that to the post-war boom and the baby boom having basically prosperity for the, most of their lives? Mm-hmm. What, what difference did that make and kind of where do we stand today on that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, that was a dramatic shift. It was certainly lots of people who had lived through the Depression helped fuel the post-war boom. So again, it's hard to generalize about the, the impact that the Depression had. Um, but it was a lot of younger people, many soldiers returning from the war, who helped drive this spending boom. And it was fueled by, um, by the government by, through different programs like um, 
you know, federal housing assistance for returning soldiers and things like that, lots of credit being made available to young families, a real push to get people out into the suburbs to buy homes, to then furnish the homes, to buy cars, all that stuff. Um, you know, it's interesting. You can see a real shift around that time. To me, it's, there were a lot of, well, there were a lot of economists and politicians who were really worried during World War II about what would happen when the war ended and this whole stimulus program of military spending was going to come to an end. You know, what would drive the economy forward after that? And many people came to the conclusion that a consumer society was what would drive the, keep driving the economy. And so there were lots of articles and books written about how people needed to spend, and it was your patriotic duty. So to me, this is really where thrift starts to get lost as, a, as an American virtue. You know, it, from having once looked up to people like Ben Franklin or the characters in the Rags to Riches stories who were all sort of, uh, who they worked hard and they were frugal and made it to middle-class respectability. In 1947, that's the first year that Scrooge McDuck appears. He's Donald Duck's um, stingy uncle. And, you know, um, Jack Benny in the 40s and 50s was doing his shtick, which often featured himself as his cheapskate character and getting lots and lots of laughs. So, you know, th- I think... Those were negative was, characters, right? In other words, these were negative uh, images. Yeah, these were Benny negative portrayals and, of, of frugality, which was yes. very different from what you would have seen 50 years earlier and, or 100 years earlier. So, you know, I think thrift went from being a, a national virtue to uh, and a heroic virtue to being kind of a punchline in the post-war period. So you're, I'm, you're trying to get a sense. Right now we're kind of swinging back towards thrift, but we're not all the way back to where we were in the Depression era. No, saying? not at all. I mean, you know, in the Depression, people were, you know, eating weeds, basically, and, and cutting, cutting back on everything, everywhere that they possibly could. I mean, you know, living in caves sometimes, or, um, you know, some of the stories are really harrowing. And I just don't, you know, we're not at that point yet. We're maybe, we're at the point where people are canceling their gym memberships. But, you know, if you sort of try to compare <laughs> that to what the Depression was like for people, it's, it's a very different situation. And so, no, I don't think we've, I don't think we've had the pants scared off of us in the way that people who lived through the 30s did. You have a whole chapter in your book called Eco-Cheap. Um, what are some ways that people are trying to be ecologically cheap, and, and what a p- impact do you think is the Gulf oil spill having on that whole movement? Um, well, that's a good question. I think the, the spill, you know, hopefully, aside from the immediate tragedy, um, is make, maybe also making people step back and look at our dependence on oil and, you know, maybe things would be different if we made a a national investment in high-speed transit and, you know, uh, trains and things like that. Um, But in terms of eco-cheap, you know, there's a a lot of overlap uh, and a real synthesis between being ecologically friendly and being frugal. Um, You know, the fewer resources you use, the... um, you know, the cheaper your lifestyle and also the lighter your footprint is on the rest of the world. So I think people are, you know, finding all kinds of ways, whether it means lowering the heat, kind of like my dad did, although I asked my father if there was any environmental reasons for him keeping the house so cold when I was growing up, and he said he wished there was, but there really wasn't. You know, he was green before his time, but it was kind of unintentional. Um, You know, I think people are looking at ways to save resources, and often that means buying less. It means recycling more. And when I say recycling, I don't just mean, you know, your cans and glass jars. I mean also shopping at thrift stores or um, using FreeCycle, using Craigslist. You know, the Internet has facilitated cheap living in amazing ways. So are there some specific things you would recommend people who want to have a uh, lighter ecological footprint as ways to, to and save. And also save money? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think uh, as much as I complained about this when I was younger, I would say turn down the heat, but, um, you know, and, and turn off the air conditioner. I mean, I get in very frustrated when I walk down the street and I see stores blasting their air conditioning and they've got their doors open on a day when it's 90 degrees and you know, 80% humidity here in New York City. So I, I think we're still extremely wasteful about these things. Um, you know, I gave up my car. I live in New, York, in New York, so I don't really need one. But I used to, when I worked at Newsday, I used to commute to Long Island every day, and I needed my car then. But when I left that job, I basically gave up the car and rely on my bike and public transportation. I mean, you know, you find lots of ways 
when you start to think about it, that you can cut down on the waste. My father was always obsessed with grouping his errands together so that he was driving less. Um, you know, so if shopping needed to be done at four different places, he would make sure to do it all in the same afternoon. Uh, you know, once you start looking for things like this, there are a lot of ways to cut back that don't necessarily make your life that much less comfortable. You also have a chapter about uh, various ethnicities and their views uh, about cheapness. You talk particularly about cheap Jews and the thrifty Chinese. Are, are these stereotypes accurate, or are they just stereotypes that are not really accurate? Well, accurate, not accurate, it's sometimes hard to say. You know, I, I wanted to look at the development of the stereotypes partly to explain um, some of my own relatives, you know, and, and maybe how they got to be the way they are. So, you know, on the one hand, I was you look at the historical development from the Middle Ages of the um, stereotype of Shylock, um, you know, as a grasping money lender, uh, very, very stingy. And, you know, there's, the, there's that interesting historical tale. And then there's the reality of um, many of my Jewish relatives who insist on, you know, wrapping up the bread from a restaurant and bringing it home with them. So, um, you know, real or not, it's, it's always hard to say. I mean, the fact that my relatives do this probably, you know, it may or may not have anything to do with them being Jewish, but it probably has a lot to do with our family having been immigrants in the early part of this century. And I think more than anything, it's, it is probably, the reality of it probably comes from the, the immigrant story, both for Chinese and Jews, you know, and many, many other ethnic groups, too, where you come to a place like America with nothing in your pocket, and it takes a lot of hard work and saving to get to the point where your kids become doctors and lawyers or your grandkids become doctors and lawyers. So, you know, part of it is just the immigrants driving. Um, and then, the, you know, with each, each of those two groups, Jews and Chinese, there are specific historical circumstances, um, you know, that, that led to the development of the stereotype itself. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber, whose book is called In Cheap We Trust, The Story of a Misunderstood American Virtue. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. When you were young, did you feel free to daydream? Were you full of questions such as why, how, and what if? Did you allow yourself to be carefree, to dance and sing? Did you create just for fun? Want to feel that way again? Reclaim your natural curiosity and creativity with Dr. Carol Stalkup on Stargazing Stories, sparking your creativity. Revitalize your life, work, and relationships. Be more playful, be bold, imagine, explore, and live more creatively every day. Tune in Wednesdays at 11 a.m. in the East, 8 a.m. in the West on 7th Wave Network. Are you ready to talk football with the greatest wide receiver player and coach in NFL history? Tune in to Wide Open with Andre Rison. Andre is ready to talk to you and give his thoughts on the sport. There will be celebrity guests, coaches, players, artists, and more. He'll go beyond the game with a look from the coach's point of view and feature a high school player each week. Tune in to Wide Open with host Andre Rison, featured Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Lauren Weber, whose book is called In Cheap We Trust, The Story of a Misunderstood American Virtue. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. Thank you. You have at the end of the book a primer on frugal living. So why don't you go through some of the things, some books, some websites, some other organizations that might help people uh, who want to learn to be as cheap as you are. (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, I wanted to collect some of the resources that I had used for the book, both for my research, some of the most fun stuff that I read, and also um, some places that people can turn for some real practical advice. And Anybody who's frugal and has been living this way for a long time has probably become familiar with the Tightwad Gazette at some point. This was a great newsletter written by a woman named Amy Decision, who called herself the Frugal Zealot. And um, it was basically just a compendium of um, tips on saving money. And she, you know, I thought I was cheap when I picked these up. You know, hers are, uh, sometimes they're, even I would call them a little bit crazy. Like she suggests taking those purple rubber bands that you get on stalks of broccoli to hold the stalks together and, and cutting them in half um, vertically so that you get two rubber bands out of them. Now, I don't know anybody who needs more rubber bands than they already have, but she's got the, the uh, ideas on how to make them. She also talks about making volleyball nets from um, six-pack rings. You know, she's, she does, she's very scientific about it. She figures out how much it costs to make her own chalk for her kids versus buying it at the dollar store, that kind of thing. So this newsletter ran for about seven years in the 90s, and then by the, by the end I think she had over 100,000 subscribers, and which, again, goes to show how many people were interested in cheap living. And um, she eventually retired and, you know, has not looked back as far as I can tell. Um, so that's really the Bible for anybody who so, so considers that is, it's not being published case. anymore. You're saying it's not being published anymore, but I'm I'm pretty sure the collected Tightwad Gazette is probably still in print, um, oh. and of course can be found on eBay and uh, all the used book websites. Um, you know, and then for a little historical reading, I found um, Ben Franklin's writings incredibly entertaining. He was just hysterically funny. Um, not just the autobiography, which is what he's most famous for, but you know, if you get a, a book of some of his letters or some of the pamphlets that he wrote, um, he has all kinds of very, very humorous um, advice about living cheaply. And you know, much of it is just as relevant 300 years after he, you know, or 250 years after he wrote it, uh, as it was the day he did. So, you know, there's, there's just a wide spectrum of really interesting stuff. And then one of my favorite websites is called fallenfruit.org, and it's a, it's a site in Los Angeles that maps out where, where public fruit trees are so that people can go and gather the fruit when it's in season. And uh, I just think that's pretty ingenious because probably lots of that fruit would otherwise go to waste. What are some other websites that you would recommend for people who want to learn to save money? Um, well, you know, there's FreeCycle, of course. That's um, one of the obvious ones. There, Craigslist also has a, a free section and also a frugal chat room, basically, where people share tips. Um, there's one called Swaparama Mama, which lists, organizes and then lists clothing swaps around the country. And I don't think I've bought new clothes in about four years because I get almost everything I have at clothing swaps that are either organized by my friends where we all, you know, go through our closet and find what we're not wearing anymore and trade amongst each other, or um, most cities have public swaps where anybody can come and bring things and take whatever they want. There's always a question, I guess, of time versus money. How much time is it worth to invest in, you know, cutting that uh, rubber band in half (laughs) versus, you know, the small amount of money it would take to to buy your rubber bands on your own? How does somebody's supposed to make that trade-off between time and money. Right. Well, you know, this comes up a lot because um, people often gasp in horror when I say that I will sometimes walk 30 minutes out of my way to go to an ATM machine of my own bank so I don't have to pay the fees. And people say, well, your time must be worth almost nothing. Um, You know, this is a personal calculation for everybody. 
for one thing, paying bank fees is one of the things that makes me angriest. So I feel personally triumphant when I don't have to pay it. And then, you know, I also kind of, obviously I don't do that when I'm in a rush or uh, I don't have the extra time. But, you know, if I have the time, I consider it exercise and it's better than using my time, you know, browsing in a store and possibly spending money. So, you know, I, I think it's very personal. Some people, you know, but there's, there is a lot of pleasure in doing a lot of things for yourself. And I think that's a part of the psychology also that frugal people have, which is a very gratifying sense of self-sufficiency. So the more things you can do for yourself, whether it's um, fixing your own VCR or DVD player when it breaks or baking your own bread or, um, you know, sewing your own clothes or whatever it is, there's, it's not just about the time-money trade-off. There's also an emotional satisfaction that, that I think people get from, from various frugal activities. I guess the other criticism of this whole approach is if everybody were this cheap, then the economy would collapse because we're pretty much a consumer economy. What, what is the reaction to that? Yeah, and that's a big issue. Um, and and I, I heartily admit, you know, if everybody was as cheap as me, it would be a disaster. I, my, my personal saving rate is, you know, at the times when I have a job is generally around 20 or 25%. Our national savings rate, even, you know, in this post-Lehman Brothers, post-crash period is, you know, somewhere around 3% or so. So if everybody was like me, it would be disastrous for the economy. But, you know, what I say is that it's really about finding a better balance. You know, I think what's clear is that we really got out of balance in the last decade or so. And, you know, we were spending, 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 and maybe it did fuel um, the economy for a while, but look, it turned out to be kind of a bubble. So, you know, what we need to do is think about how to live more sustainably, both, you know, environmentally, but, you know, also economically, and, you know, find a better balance than what we've had. In about a minute or so we have left, why don't you just kind of sum up and also give them your website as well, what people can learn uh, in, in their own spending habits by getting in cheap request. Well, you know, like I said, I think it's, a, it's really about restoring a sense of respect to cheapness uh, so that people don't have to feel ashamed when, you know, friends want to go out to an expensive restaurant and they say, no, I'd rather save some money towards my down payment on my house or whatever. Um, you know, I, I am... I think it's time to reclaim frugality as, a, as an important American virtue. Um, so I think I hope that, that people would get that message from the book. Um, my website is uh, www.laurenweber.com, and it's Weber with one B. So in, in your book, you have lots of useful resources as well as a kind of a history of the whole uh, uh, kind of thoughts about cheapness as well as a lot of the psychology of cheapness mm-hmm. and how uh, in picking a mate or somebody you're going to be having a significant relationship with uh, the, the view towards spending or not spending can make a big difference. And you, you would agree that that's a, a major part of the happiness or not happiness of a relationship. Yeah, you know, you don't, you don't want money to be the thing that you're fighting about all the time. Indeed. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been Lauren Weber, uh, whose book is called In Cheap We Trust, uh, the story of a misamer- misunderstood American virtue. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. And hope you've enjoyed the show, and we'll be back with you again next week for another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.